Sixty years ago this February, a plane carrying one of rock and roll's first singer-songwriters crashed. Some called it the day the music died. Today on the off-ramp, Buddy Holly remembered. and welcome to The Off-Ramp with Bob Smith. One day early in my career as a young broadcaster interviewing singers and musicians, I realized that again and again I was running into people who knew or who worked with Buddy Holly, men who survived his death that winter morning in February of 1959 and went on with their lives. I was too young to remember Buddy Holly. I was only eight when he died, so he was a legend. It had been 20 years since Rock's first singer-songwriter had had his life cut short, and his stature had grown significantly. Fortunately, I was working in Iowa, where Buddy Holly played his last concert. The second Buddy Holly Memorial Festival was scheduled to take place at the Surf Ballroom in Clear Lake. That's where Buddy's last concert took place. So I decided to attend. And there I met yet another person who had a connection to Buddy Holly. This time it was Nicky Sullivan, one of Buddy Holly's guitarists. After I got home, I decided to do a special on these middle-aged men who had known and worked with Buddy Holly in their youth. And that's what today's show is all about. Buddy Holly Remembered. <laughs> Back in July of 1957, I first heard That'll Be The Day, and today that is still my favorite record. I've heard it every day of my life since 1957. There was never, never any uh, pressure to be perfect. Buddy never demanded it of us. I think he did of himself, but not out loud. He tried very hard to do, uh, to do what made him happy. The music really was a reflection of his personality and of, of his life. It wasn't just uh, you know a few lines strung together for commercialism. It wasn't that at all. It was really folk music of a sort. February made me shiver With every paper I'd deliver Bad news on the doorstep I couldn't take one more step I can't remember if I cried When I read about his widowed bride But something touched me deep inside the day the music died. It wasn't until 21 years after that fateful plane crash near Clear Lake, Iowa, that an important piece of Buddy Holly memorabilia came to light. In 1980, searching through some evidence drawers in the basement of the Mason City, Iowa courthouse, the Cerro Gordo County Sheriff Jerry Allen found a wristwatch belonging to J.P. Richardson known in the 1950s as the Big Bopper, and eyeglasses belonging to Buddy Holly. They were in an envelope. It was from an old coroner's inquest uh, dated back in 1959, and it uh, had the name of Charles Harden Holly, 
and two other members of the group, Richie Valens and uh, Giles Richardson. And the envelope contained uh, what are obviously uh, Holly's glasses and uh, uh, presentation wristwatch that belonged to Richardson, who was better known as the Big Bopper at that time. What's the, could you describe the glasses? Or what shape are they in after all these years and being hidden away in the court records? Well, the glasses, uh, the frames are intact. Of course, the uh, lenses are gone, and they bear some uh, scratches and damage, uh, which probably, uh, no doubt, came from the uh, from the crash itself. Uh, the one bow is is uh, broken loose, but uh, the bows are intact. It's a it's the the distinctive glasses that he wore with the white bows and the angular uh, heavy. Frame, uh, glasses frame itself. There's no question that that's, uh, in my mind, that that's whose they are. The envelope shows a receipt date of 7 April of 59, which is several months after the crash, which of course happened on February 3rd. And uh, I'm just making a wild guess that uh, this property was turned in at a later time, very possibly was picked up at the crash scene when the snow cover uh, disappeared. This property was not turned into the sheriff's office. It was uh, no doubt given to the coroner, and this was placed in in a, in a dead storage area in the basement of this courthouse, and uh, that's where it was. I see. Uh, we were looking for some court reporter's notes, which they did use part of this drawer for some old notes, and uh, I didn't find the information I was looking for, but I guess found something a little more significant the glasses, which I think will be, well, I know they'll be turned back to the family, whether it's Buddy Holly's widow or his mother, uh, that's up to them, but uh, uh, at least the stuff will not be put out on the market as, a, as an item. Heartbeat, why do you miss when my baby kisses me? Legends belong to the people, but somebody has to safeguard that legend, protecting it from harm, misuse, and faulty memories. The Buddy Holly legend is in the hands of a Connecticut man, Bill Griggs, who formed the Buddy Holly Memorial Society back in 1975. Buddy Holly was an original. He did not copy somebody else. He went out and did his own thing. He was one of the few singer-songwriters of the 50s. Most of the artists came along and did somebody else's music, and that was it. Uh, Chuck Berry, Buddy Holly, and a few others were the original singer-songwriters. They wrote their own songs, performed their own songs. Buddy was not afraid to try something new. He would experiment with strings. He would double-track his voice on a mono tape recorder, which was hard to do back in the 50s. And I really, really admire him for that. And ever since I heard that'll be the day for the first time of July of 1957, I've been in love with the man. As with every cult figure, memorabilia, posters, pictures, and recordings of Buddy Holly draw record prices. I am also a record collector, and I, we're approaching fast 700 different records on Buddy Holly from around the world in my personal collection. I just got a 10-inch LP from Holland for $765, and that's the most I've ever paid up to date. It's called Countrywise. It's the Buddy and Bob days, the very early days, before the Decca days and before the Cricket days. 200 were pressed as a legitimate press over in Holland. It's been on my want list for years and years. I finally got it. 
As keeper of the Buddy Holly flame, Bill Griggs says he found the movie The Buddy Holly Story to be an enjoyable one, but he does cite three major inaccuracies in the film. They left out Buddy's producer, Norman Petty. They left out one of the crickets, Nicky Sullivan. Now, there's a reason uh, in the first book by John Gorosin, John had not met Nicky at the time, and there were not any quotes from Nicky in the book, and I think that was the reason, because the movie was very loosely based on the book. But uh, they left a cricket out of the movie. There were three crickets when they first started. The other one, of course, was the way they depicted Buddy's parents and his preacher, Ben Johnson, in the movie. His preacher was behind him 100%. His parents were behind him 100%. I liked the movie. It was very, very enjoyable. It was fairly factual. There were three major mistakes in the movie and a lot of little ones, but until something else comes along, it's our movie. There is a word for people like Bill Griggs. It's fan, from the word fanatic. And if there ever was a Buddy Holly fanatic in life, it must be Bill Griggs. Back in July of 1957, I first heard That'll Be the Day. And today, that is still my favorite record. I've heard it every day of my life since 1957. It's so easy to fall in love. It's so easy to fall in love. For foods, so here I go breaking all of the rules. It seems so easy. Even though he was just reaching a peak of popularity after only a few years on the charts at the time of his death, Buddy Holly's contributions to rock and roll music were immense. Many people didn't realize that at the time, but some did. Four British musicians known as the Beatles did, and they recorded several of his songs and talked about him whenever Buddy Holly's name was mentioned. In fact, the Beatles' reverence for Buddy Holly was so strong that they recorded words of love at the same tempo and in the same key as Holly. Listen first to Buddy Holly's original version of Words of Love. Hold me close and tell me how you feel. Tell me love is real. And now, the Beatle version. Interest in Buddy Holly among musicians stayed far ahead of that of the public. Eric Clapton's band, Blind Faith, broke up in the late 1960s, but before that time they recorded their own version of Well All Right. And Don McLean told the story of American music in American Pie with Buddy Holly as the central focus of the song. But it was the Beatles who brought Buddy Holly back to the attention of many young Americans. That, that had a lot to do with it. I know I'd heard a couple of Buddy songs before the Beatles came along, but I think I really did become interested at the time of the British invasion when the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and Herman's Hermits and Peter and Gordon and everybody was doing his songs and I can remember DJs uh, playing Buddy's version and then playing the new version and that did get me interested in, in going back and listening to the albums. That's John Goldrosen who in the early 70s sat down to write the Buddy Holly story, the book which was translated into a movie in 1978 with Gary Busey as its star. What sparked Goldrosen's interest in Buddy Holly? Well I first began listening to his music in the early 60s. I'm not quite old enough to go back to the 50s and his songs meant a lot to me. There was a lot of content and impact to the songs. 
And I guess my desire to write a book simply grew out of the fact that there was nothing available in Buddy Holly back in the 50s. There was no Rolling Stone interviewing the people, nobody writing reviews of concerts. And there's very little written down. And somehow I, I needed to know if Buddy meant the music in the way in which I took it and what kind of person could create such music, and that's really why I went out and did the work I did on it. John traveled to Texas and spoke at length with many of Buddy Holly's friends, business associates, and relatives in his research. When I, got, when I did reach out and contact these people, I really didn't encounter any resistance. Uh, at the time, there wasn't a whole lot of interest in Holly generally, and most of these people had not been interviewed before at Lane, so it was kind of fresh for them. And once they felt that I was sincere in what I was doing, and then their attitude was that they wanted a truthful and accurate book on Buddy Ritten. Uh, people like the Crickets and his family uh, really loved Buddy Holly, and they wanted people to know what kind of person he was. And that was, to me, the most interesting part of doing the book is, sure, I found out about what song was recorded when, who was on, and all that business, but to find out what kind of a human being Buddy Holly was and to try to present that to people, that was the most challenging part. So what type of human being was Buddy Holly? I don't think I'd really thought through before I began it what kind of a person I expected to find. Uh, I did find that I, th I think the music really was a reflection of his personality and of, of his life. It wasn't just, uh, you know, a few lines strung together for commercialism. It wasn't that at all. It was really folk music of a sort. Uh, and I think what surprised me maybe is to realize how creative he was, to realize that he, he did have a command over his performances and over his recordings, that he was a thoughtful person. I, I think he's the kind of person who would have been a success at anything he turned his mind to. And now, oh boy, with Buddy Holland and his crickets. My Lord, all of my kisses, you don't know what you've been. I miss you, no boy, when you're with me, oh boy. I thought the world could say that you were a bit for me. All of my life, I've been waiting, and I'd never be no hesitating, no boy. When you're with me, oh boy, I thought the world could say that you were a bit for me. If you were to have looked at the little town of Clear Lake, Iowa, back in 1959, or even today, you might wonder how such a community could attract such a major musical star as Buddy Holly. He was asked to do this tour. Uh, this was a tour of about two weeks' length through the Midwest uh, on a package show. I believe he did the tour partly as a, as a favor to the booking agency. They needed a top name on, on the bill. Uh, I don't think he wanted to go out in the middle of the winter. He was a Texan, and this weather went to police him in any case. His wife was pregnant. He wanted some time off. but. One of the reasons was as a favor to the booking agency, plus he was getting started in some new projects and he just wanted the cash. Um, and Clear Lake was one of the stops on the tour. They played a lot of small towns like Clear Lake. It's, it's really remarkable to look at that schedule and I couldn't even try to pronounce some of the names of the towns. I embarrassed myself, but uh, from coming here again last year and uh, I guess Clear, the Clear Lake Ballroom and the others in this region, Minnesota and, and Iowa, 
a part of a sort of dance hall circuit. And it's really amazing to see how people will turn out in the middle of winter for concerts like this. They did have good crowds on these concerts. And you got to remember back in the 50s that uh, rock and roll then, they couldn't always play every day in a big city. They had to fill in with some of these small towns. They didn't get that much money for these tours. So if they could draw 1,000 to 2,000 a night, that was a, a good crowd back then. A long time forgotten, the dreams that just fell by the As it is when anyone dies, Buddy Holly's friends and family had to pick up and keep going after that night in Clear Lake, Iowa. One of the young men who played for a time in Buddy's last band, another Texas boy named Waylon, Waylon Jennings, went on to become a country music singer and in the 1970s blossomed into a major country music superstar. At times he took Jerry Allison and Joe Malden, two of Buddy's former crickets, on tour with him. Most people who watched the Mary Tyler Moore comedy show during the 1970s were unaware that the man who wrote and sang the opening theme for that show was Sonny Curtis, who also was a member of the Crickets. Who can turn the world on with her smile? Sonny Curtis went through the late 50s writing songs like Walk Right Back for the Everly Brothers and I Fought the Law in the 1960s. He scored a hit again in 1980 with the real Buddy Holly story. The name of Bob Montgomery came up in a conversation with singer Bobby Goldsboro in 1980. Bob Montgomery was the name of a fellow who formed a country and western band with Buddy Holly before the crickets were born. But Bobby Goldsboro was talking about a Bob Montgomery who was Goldsboro's business partner, a man who co-produced some of Bobby Goldsboro's greatest hits, songs like Watching Scotty Grow and Honey. Well, Bob is, uh, he and I have a, a publishing company in Nashville, uh, House of Gold, and we, we published uh, Behind Closed Doors and a lot of the big songs over the last few years. But Bob also is a producer. He's uh, produced several hit records on other artists and uh, got uh, several records on the country charts right now that he produced. He's uh, very active in producing, writing, publishing. Where's he from? He's from Texas, originally. Is he anything to do with Buddy Holly? There was a Bob Montgomery. Bob Montgomery, he's the same guy that uh, started out with Buddy Holly writing songs and uh, and he knew Buddy. In fact, he tells us stories about Buddy all the time. Sonny Curtis, and uh, who's one of the of the cricket. You know, they're touring as the crickets now. Sonny Curtis and uh, and uh, who else? Uh, Jerry Allison. Allison. Jerry Allison. They're all good friends of mine. I see him a lot. Another singer, Bobby V, remembers Buddy Holly in a different way. It was due to Buddy Holly's death in that plane crash that Bobby V got his first big break in show business. Your band was asked to step in that night uh, at a date, uh, what, in Moorhead? That's right, in 1959, Buddy Holly died and, and he was en route to my hometown to do a concert up in Fargo. And um, the radio station had decided to go ahead with the show and ask for any local bands that would come down and help fill in, so we did. We opened the show that night and we just played that one uh, evening with that particular show, but that was, there was a guy in the audience that, that started booking us and we eventually made a record and things kind of took off from there. How old were you that night when you stepped in for the crickets and, and your band did the show? You were, what, 16, 17? I was 15. 15? Right. Your brother Bill was a composer and guitarist in the group. Right, he was the lead guitar player and he was kind of the, the organizer of the band. He was the oldest one in the group and I think he was 20 or 19, something like that. So, so you were all pretty young at the time. Right, yeah. Scott Turner, a music industry professional who eventually produced Slim Whitman, Vicki Carr, Willie Nelson, and Waylon Jennings, also worked with Buddy Holly in his early years. They even wrote music together. And during a 1980 interview, he produced sheet music from a song he and Buddy wrote before either became famous. And there's the 
lyric in this is the scrawling that I wrote. This was done in the backseat of a car going back from a show. <laughs> it had never been published. Now, remember, back in the 50s, we wrote what we called formula songs, you uh -huh. know, little uh, do you want to dance and little things like that. And this one is, uh, if you close the door to your heart and you lock your love in behind it, well, how in the world, my sweet girl, am I ever going to find it? Oh, sweet girl, don't hide your love. You got to let me know what you're thinking of. Please let me know it's not a game, and I'll put some fuel on the burning flame. And if you close <laughs> the door to your heart, and you lock your love up behind it, well, how in the world, oh, sweet girl, am I... And that's the way it uh -huh. goes. <laughs> I can see it sounds like one of the oh, buddy yeah, it's got that. the... <laughs> you know, those, <laughs> it's all through there. Scott Turner, Waylon Jennings, Sonny Curtis, Bobby Goldsboro, Jerry Allison, Bob Montgomery, Bobby V., these are men whose lives were, in one way or another, influenced by Buddy Holly, and they went on in the music business. But what about those who dropped out along the way? Coming up, we'll tell you the story of a cricket who retired, the story of Nicky Sullivan. Well, all right, so I'm being foolish. Well, all right, let people know about the dreams and wishes you wish. In the night when lights are low Well, all right, well, all right We'll live and love with all our might Well, all right, well, all right Our lifetime love will be all right This is Ronnie King. At our WGH Teen Time microphone, we have with us Buddy Holly. Hi, Buddy. Hi, Ronnie. How are you? Pretty good, thank you. Buddy, could you tell us some of the big records that you and your group have had? Well, we've had uh, That'll Be the Day was our first one, and Peggy Sue followed it, and along with Oh Boy and Maybe Baby, and then uh, Early in the Morning, and then our latest one, It's So Easy. You sold quite a bit. Do you know the total number of all your records, how much they've sold so far? Uh, we don't have any idea, Ronnie, what's sold. We figure somewhere around four or five million, somewhere along there. Four or five million, tremendous volume of records. How did you happen to get started? Well, we uh, met in high school, I guess you'd say, in Lubbock, Texas. That's our hometown, and we all went to the same high school there and started playing together there. Long star state. Uh, how old are you? I'm 22. Uh, and listening to you, buddy, it seems like you all could do something in jazz. Have you ever tried anything along that line? <laughs> no, we hadn't. It's strange that you should say that because uh, we've always made it a point to more or less not like jazz, actually, and it's kind of in uh, in conjunction with rock and roll in one way, and then it's kind of against it in a way. Yeah, yeah that's so true. I didn't mean to imply that your music you've played so far, I don't know, for some reason you sort of strike me as a jazz man <laughs> for some reason. Well, uh, it's probably the glasses or something. <laughs> it could be. Brubeck, man. Yeah. <laughs> uh, do you have any special plans for the future? No, we don't. We didn't, uh, in the way of bookings, we don't know what's coming up for us after this tour. The last night of this tour is three nights from tonight in, uh, in Richmond. And then uh, our new release will be out in a few days. It's a choral release entitled Heartbeat, back with Well All Right. Heartbeat, that's the number we'll have to watch for. Uh, finally, buddy, you know there's many mediums of that you can present yourself to the entertainment field, uh, such as the stage and the records, nightclubs. Uh, which do you prefer the most? I prefer the one-nighter tourists, such as we're on, the uh, large rhythm and blues type package shows. 
You feel that you can get the most out of your audience. Uh-huh. Yeah, you can you can do your four or five songs and and really, I mean, it feels good to play to an audience that's watching instead of an audience that's either uh, uh, interested in something else, like in nightclubs. You know, there's a lot going on that sometimes they're interested in something besides the act on stage. And then uh, in your dances, well, they're more interested in their dancing, of course. Yes, you feel your audience a lot more. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Buddy Holly and the Crickets. You're listening to The Off-Ramp with Bob Smith. Coming up, the story of a cricket who retired. Nikki Sullivan. We hope you've enjoyed part one of our Buddy Holly Remembered special and that you'll join us again for part two next time here on The Off-Ramp. Thanks for listening. The Off-Ramp with Bob Smith is produced in association with CPL Radio and the Cedarbrook Public Library, Cedarbrook, Wisconsin.